Hi, this is Steve Morris from Deep Purple, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. This is Jesse James Dupree from Jacqueline. This is Iron City Rocks. Crank it up! Rock me, roll me, jackal me off. Ba pow! Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. I want to welcome you to the first episode of 2011, and we're going to do it by cleaning out the closet just a little more. We started before Christmas uh, with an interview with Wild McBrown of the Ted Nugent Band and Dokken, and also Rudy Sarzo of uh, many, many band fame. But got a couple more interviews that we wanted to share with you before we get into some exciting new content for 2011. We're going to get into an interview first with legendary guitarist Steve Morris. Steve Morris has been around since the 70s, playing in bands like the Dixie Dregs. I uh, was also in Kansas for a period of time, uh, solo artist with the Steve Morris Band, and most recently, uh, risen to worldwide fame with Deep Purple. So we're going to get into an interview we did with him uh, back in early December while he was on tour in the south of France. Hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, with great pleasure, I welcome from Deep Purple, Steve Morris. How are you doing tonight, Steve? Doing great. Just got back from the show, and it's, uh, it's a long tour, but it's going great. Great. And you're in the south of France right now? Yes. In fact, uh, my friend John McLaughlin just sent some of the guys from his neighborhood uh, cappuccino bar to, <laughs> to the show. He's, he's touring in America right now, and, and, uh, and so he emailed me and told me... Uh, they were coming and put them on the guest list. So Excellent, <laughs> pretty cool. Well, I appreciate it. I know it's it's an ungodly hour there, um, so I appreciate it. And I won't take up a ton of your time. I just wanted to kind of uh, talk through your career a little bit because you've got kind of I, I don't want to say sort of two different careers, but you've got some very diverse things in your catalog. I mean, you started out um, your style. I would I would call somewhat of a rock fusion. But can you kind of describe what your formative years was? I remember seeing on one of your instructional DVDs that you learned House of the Rising Sun was kind of your first song, but how did you kind of come to the guitar, and, and, and what do you think influenced your style of playing? Well, it started with, you know, just seeing. Well, I, I always loved music, but uh, seeing the Beatles, I think, was a big part of it. It was right around the time that I started playing guitar, seeing the Beatles on, on live TV. Mm-hmm. And um, they sounded so, of course, you know, I didn't realize that they were like the best band in the world at the time I was a kid. Sure. But but I, I said that the guitar really is driving, and and the, you know John Lennon and George Harrison just had the best um, team, mm-hmm. best team of, of any two guitarists, you know, outside of Dwight Allman and Dickie Betts. 
Right. So anyway, those those were my first ones, and then, of course the Stones that that all the guitar gods that that came afterwards. I I just loved every bit of every bit of rock and roll that I could soak up. You know, from uh, Chuck Berry to uh, Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. Page back, and then like I just mentioned, Don McLaughlin. But when My Vision Orchestra came out, that really changed me, and and you know. I had I had been studied just starting to study jazz at the University of Miami mm-hmm. and and classical guitar. Okay. And so I was trying to branch out and and when I heard this, it's like now this is this is a jazz player that's playing rock and roll with a jazz. I mean, it's a blend. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is this is something I could really love to do, and so it changed my life. Yeah, I said one of the things I've always kind of thought about your style is is how unique, especially coming from a rock as as a rock fan as, as I am. You know, I, I remember seeing you back in the in the early '80s on the cover of Guitar World and really having no idea who you were. I mean, frankly, I mean that was the days of you know Eddie Van Halen and George Lynch and Angus Young and, and who is this guy that keeps year after year winning Best Overall Guitar Player? And it wasn't really until you kind of came into more popular music with Kansas that I really got a chance to hear you playing. But um, you, let me back up a little bit. The Dixie Dregs, do you want to kind of talk about how that band came together? Because you've got, you know, such a, you know, unique blend of musicians there. Well, actually, the um, the Dregs started as the remnants of a group I had called Dixie Grit with my brother. My okay. brother, my older brother, was a drummer, and we did. We had we had a vocalist, uh, keyboard, bass, guitar, drum, drums, and and we did original music. It was, I guess, the closest thing you could compare it to was we were we thought of ourselves as like the a southern yes or something. Okay. And uh, the um, the band. You know, we played some dances and things. This was in Augusta, Georgia, in the '60s, and they just weren't ready for us. And so every time we played, the people were were like, "Play something we can dance to," you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff. And the band eventually broke up. And Andy West, the the bass player, and I were were the only ones left. So we were the dregs of that band. The band was called okay. Dixie Grit, which is yeah. just a dope name because we weren't we weren't especially Dixie anything. We were just right. <laughs> thought of ourselves as very cosmopolitan people. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> we, were, we were a kid. We were teenagers. And uh, so we called ourselves the Dixie Drags and had a laugh and thought that that was funny, not realizing that, you know, things like that would you know, <laughs> affect us for the rest of our lives, yeah. that people would judge us by the name. But uh, we we didn't think too much about it. And we went about having an instrumental group with we had uh, several different drummers, and we we just played instrumental stuff mm-hmm. that that was you know challenging and interesting and and at the time people were people loved to go to concerts so if we played somewhere for free people would come sure and it, not just because it was us or anything people just liked music at that time it was like a big deal if if, if a band was playing so mm-hmm. so we were able to have an audience almost. Any time we wanted to, so we kept on and kept on. And uh, when I went to music school in Miami, Andy West came down there with me, and we we got we met some other guys: Alan Sloan, Rod Morgenstein, Frank Josephs, and 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 so we started having the band be uh, 
an ensemble from the university. The university would uh, require, you know, every music major to have several different ensembles that they play with. Mm-hmm. And our ensemble was uh, technically called Rock Ensemble Number Two because yeah. <laughs> I was in Rock Ensemble Number One, and it was very jazz oriented. And I, I, I remember saying to them, you know, I'd love to uh, um, to get some. Uh, some kind of group together that was more of a rock group. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, well, you can do it. You can be an instructor. And that that's kind of how it, uh, uh, kind of how it started getting bigger from that point, you know. Right. And then after, after everybody graduated, um, we, we just kept on, um, we kept on, uh, we're playing, small gigs and free gigs and, and kept getting a good reaction from people. So we moved up to Georgia where Andy and I were from and, and we, we had a band house the other guys lived at and we just started branching out, just playing everywhere we could, trying to get a little following going and the following kept getting bigger and so we kept on and kept on and eventually some 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 of the people from the record companies that said, no, we're not signing you, did. Mm-hmm. Shows once Once they got... They saw some interest from other people. Sure. And you eventually ended up signing with uh, the Allman Brothers Band Capricorn, correct? With, well, with, with, the, with their label, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, you were with, you were with Capricorn for five, six years, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then uh, you, Capricorn went bankrupt, correct? Yeah. In fact, we just found out when we were on tour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they just told us. And, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And then you ended up with Arista after yeah. that, yeah. okay. And then Arista kind of made you drop the Dixie and and kind of tinkered with this kind of the I don't want to say the spirit of the band, but you ended up adding some vocals and things like that. Uh, yeah, we well, actually the vocal was was a challenge by our management company. They had us in a pretty tight contract at the time. Mm-hmm. You're unhappy with some parts of it. And they said, "Well, tell you what, if you guys try vocals and it doesn't sell any more records." And we'll let you out of the contract. They, okay. they were so convinced that if we just had vocals, everything would be okay, and they'd, they'd be rich. And so, so we went running from the office looking for vocalists that we like, you know. And so we ended up with like Pat Simmons and and you know just uh, a, a great local singer and uh, also Santana singer okay. Alex. Lich- but uh, we. And, you know, we did with, and we also got Steve Walsh to, to sing um, this whole big, huge block harmony um, section of, of one of the songs. Although he he was afraid he would get in trouble with his record company if we mentioned his name. So yeah. we never mentioned his name, but he was he was one of the voices on that record. But it was it was fun to do. We only did three songs with vocals out of, mm-hmm. out of the whole album. Right. Anyway, it got us out of the contract. Okay, I was going to say, did it did it help? And was Arista right, or, or did you guys? No, no, it did. It, no, it wasn't Arista. It was our management company. Okay, uh, and and they they were wrong as as we figured that you know a cult band is a cult band. It's, it you know unless you know unless somebody in a very big place says I really want to promote this, nothing's going to change. Yeah, yeah, you would have had to kind of kind of almost rebrand what it was that you guys were. Yeah. Now, now, how did you end up coming into the fold with Kansas then? Well, actually, I was I was at a 
Robert Plant concert in Atlanta. Kansas had moved to Atlanta. Okay. And, and then they sort of broke up. They, you know, when 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 they were at their their peak, they, they just had a triple platinum album and were just, you know everything was seemed to be going well, but there there was still a little friction between Steve and the band. Mm-hmm. So Steve quit. Then they had John Alfonte, and then that that went as far as it went. Then the band sort of broke up. Anyway, I was I was at the concert and I saw Phil Ehart, and you know Phil didn't live that far from me, and so we were talking and visiting. He says, "You know, we're thinking about putting the band together." I says, "Please do, please. I love you guys, man. You know, we we're I was I was always a very you know avid fan." Yeah. And he says, "Well, actually, we're thinking about we're talking to Steve Walsh about coming back." I said, "Fantastic, congratulations. If you need any help or anything, man, just let me know." Mm-hmm. And so we did. He called and said. Well, you know what? You want to come over and you know maybe try writing something with us? Okay, cool. And uh, we did, and then we did again, and then we did it again. <laughs> Pretty soon, we we had an album's worth of stuff. And then you want to record this with us? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then after that, do like, you want to do a tour? We got a you know a tour offer. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. And you know it, it was at a time when when I was just doing. Uh, some sporadic dates with my trio, Steve Morrison, mm-hmm. and uh, so it it was it was great. And uh, then we we did a, we did a lot of touring, and then eventually did a, another album with Bob Ezra and his producer. Yeah, that was that was a unique experience, I'm sure. Now, um, now the Steve Morris band uh, would you would you classify him? I and to me, it always seemed a little more rock oriented than even maybe. The, the Dixie Dregs were, but I mean, was that kind of the intent, or how do you divide the line between what you consider Dregs material versus Steve Morris band? Well, I I guess to make it to make it um, interesting, and, and besides, I, I, I guess yeah, I, I think I think your assessment is right. It more is more rock oriented, but part of that was, you know, just the nature of, of having. A three-piece band mm-hmm. versus five-piece. You know, when you have extra keyboards and um, violin, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot more textures you can play with. Sure. So, so, so we had a little bit more sonic variety. Well, a lot more sonic variety with the dregs, but with Steve Morse band, we it gave us opportunity to control the uh, dynamics greatly, and and it made it was made it very manageable. You know, when when you've got um, three guys, Mm -hmm. decisions can be made quickly, easily. We all get along, and and our expenses are much less, and we're just more flexible. We could all travel in my my little airplane (laughs) or or in a a rental car, however we needed to. It just just seemed like we could do anything and survive. You know, know, none of us were getting rich, but we we were surviving. And and we're we're playing pretty much what we wanted to, so yeah. it, it it seemed like like a you know a pretty pretty good time. Pretty nice setup. Yeah, I have yeah. very few regrets about my musical choices that I've made in my career, and and that, that's that's a real blessing. Yeah, to be able to look back and say that. Well, speaking of looking back, I think I believe it was around 16 years ago, uh, Mr. Satriani. Uh, Stepped out of Deep Purple, and you kind of stepped into that role. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you kind of came onto the radar for the guys? Yeah, about about seventeen years ago, I got a, a call from my manager. Says, "What do you think about Deep Purple?" I said, "Oh, I like him. Why?" 
<laughs> like whenever somebody asks an open-ended question, I'm always suspicious. And so he was. Uh, and now at this point, I have to give you a little bit of a background. Uh, the, the thing with Kansas had had ended with after the second album, that, mm-hmm. or during the second album, that there was a lot of pressure, you know, to write hits and stuff. Yeah. And you know, from the record company and and that band management, which was different from from mine. Right. And. And I, you know, and, and I realized that 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 there was a lot of pressure for Kansas to head in a different direction than than I could really help with. Yeah, I was more thinking of the, you know, just the weird stuff that that, uh, you know, that that Carrie would write that to just, uh, you know, that, that appealed to the instrumental part of me. Yeah. Anyway, but for for whatever reason, there there was a there was a, a big push to do that and. Anyway, I ended up leaving the band and leaving the music business for a while. Yeah, and you, you went into yeah. commercial airlines? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, yeah, I cut my hair, did, got all my uh, ratings in order. I've been flying for a long time, mm-hmm. anyway, flying the band around and just because I like to fly. And, and so I, I applied for and eventually got a job as an airline pilot. So I flew for about six months, and it it sort of occurred to me that that maybe you know every part every job's got parts of it that you're not going to love, right? You know, and choices that that you can't control, things like that. And it's, it was a great experience for me, you know, to to become more mature, you know, more yeah. worldly by by learning that firsthand rather than just being told. You know, I've been told in my whole life, but you know, living through it and seeing that you know, no matter what, you you're, you just got to do some stuff. You got to deal with stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I started to 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 think about getting back in the music business, and and maybe that that I could do it and hang in there, and and not have any regrets. Mm-hmm. And I did. I, when uh, when Leonard Skinner came to town with their new, you know, their new reunion. Yeah. Uh, Gary Rostin called me because he was he was uh, a friend of mine. We'd met him on tour with Kansas, and that was fantastic. I just went there, you know. I'd come back from flying like nine hours, and and went straight there. Yeah, that's uh, right. You're on that the, reunion now. Yeah, I forgot yeah, all on, about that. I'm on, yeah, I'm on and I just walked up and plugged in, and they were all just they're all welcoming and friendly, and it just seemed like hey, you know, this is the place to be. Yeah. This is the place to be. So so that was a great experience for me. It brought me back mm-hmm. and so anyway, that that's that had happened between Kansas and when I got the call from Deep Purple. Right. Meanwhile, I was like uh still doing Steve Moore's band stuff whenever we could. And so we were working on Steve Moore's band album and I got the call, I was in the studio and uh so I said, uh, what's what's the deal? Or do they want me to be something I'm not? You know, do they want me to dress a certain way or anything like that? They were like, no, no, no. They, they've seen you play. I said, you sure? Yeah. <laughs> they said, yeah, they've seen you play. And uh, as do you want to do some trial dates? I said, yeah. That's you know, that's not too much of a commitment. It was four days. Yeah. So, so we we talked for months, and they were looking for this for the right venue, the right place, and finally it, it came together. And, and you know, I thought it was going to be a little club somewhere, 
I get there and meet the band, and, and we're, it's just a gigantic coliseum filled with people in Mexico City. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Trial by fire. Uh, it, it was great, though. It was great. Did you did you have hesitation when it came to kind of I mean I had to admit even before you you stepped into Deep Purple I had a, was kind of curious how your style would mesh you know I, I don't necessarily think of you as a Richie Blackmore you know in this necessarily the same vein was that did that cross your mind you just kind of run with it well sure my big my big question was like I said did, do they know what I do yeah. and when when Frank said yeah they do know what you do it actually made me more interested so that's kind of neat that they want somebody different yeah rather than somebody that's going to clone what Richie did yeah and so that that, that made me more interested and so the, the other thing was I uh, you know I, I really wanted to, to make sure that they they could still play too you know in America it's, it was very rare to see Deep Purple live yeah I mean, they play all time in Europe and all around the world, but for some reason, America just, we just don't get very much of them, so I had never seen them play, so I wasn't sure, you know, how 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 committed I wanted to be anyway. Mm-hmm. Luckily, as soon as, after the first night of playing, I was convinced that they, they were, they were, they played great, really solid, but but especially, you know, we, we had some interplay and in, in, improvisation that, that really appealed to me. The you know the jazz side of me. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit, watching you and John Lord uh, kind of trading off, you know, between the organ and the and the guitar is a phenomenal thing to see. You know, and yeah, it, John, it was it John, was really neat. He yeah he's and and Don yeah. oh John, certainly they both, yeah. They both have these tremendous ears and 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 can follow you like like an absolute top notch keyboard player. It, it's it's really amazing and and very 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 rare in the rock world. So, so I you know I was I was very happy with with how it turned out and and was curious if they felt the same way and and uh, I think within 24 hours of us meeting everybody was slapping each other on the back and smiling. Yeah, no, certainly. Uh, to time has told the story. I mean, you guys have been together now. Um, I be- I don't know what I don't know what mock. Yeah. Deep Purple, or if anybody's still counting them as different mock versions, but you guys had to have been one of the longest lasting. Um, Mark 8, I think. Mark 8. <laughs> yeah, I, I lost track somewhere after David <laughs> Coverdale, I believe. Um, speaking of Don Airy, one of the questions I had had um, was a phenomenal little project that you guys had done, The Living Loud. Um, for those not familiar, you had worked with uh, Bob Daisley, Lee Kerslick, Don Airy, and uh, Jimmy Barnes, I believe. Yeah, Jimmy Barnes. Yeah, who most Americans probably only know from the In Excess song, but um, you guys had done a lot of like the Ozzy Osbourne kind of uh, Diary of a Madman sort of catalog, but then there was some original material in there. Is, is yeah. do you see a future in that collaboration? Is there any talks? Oh yeah, we've, we've already. Uh, I've written some stuff with them for for the next album, and we, and we you know, just really a scheduling problem. Yeah. How do we get on the same continent? Because. Uh, Bob and Jimmy live in Australia, mm-hmm. and Lee lives in England. Yeah. <laughs> Don lives in England. I live in the United States, and you know Don and I are working all the time. And I, you know, Lee has been out a lot with. Well, he's he's been touring a lot, but I'm not sure what he's doing now. Anyway, we're uh, Jimmy's always on tour. Yeah. So we 
we we just have a logistical problem, but yeah, I mean, for those who haven't seen it, there's a great DVD of of one of the shows, and it's it's well worth the uh, investment if you can get it in the United States. That's the one thing; it's a little tricky to get your hands on. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's an internet order thing. But the Living Loud actually came about. They were Bob and Lee had written a lot of the the uh, stuff with Ozzy Osbourne that mm-hmm. Randy Rhodes played on. Sure, and they were part of the band with Randy, and so so we were going to recreate recreate some of that stuff. And I was again, I was hes- hesitant, like, oh, I'm not the right guy for this. Come on. And then he said, well, yeah, but we can do it in your own style and we're going to do half the record is the stuff that we wrote with Randy and half is going to be original stuff so well, alright well that makes it interesting and so it, it was it went really great it was yeah, they, it, they're, Bob's very easy to write with because he's like a producer himself mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't it was exactly what we want it was it was you know it was, again it's, you're kind of a chameleon you put you in a situation and you can kind of adapt I mean that was almost more of a melodic hard rock metal band where I mean Deep Purple you know certainly a metal band to a degree but maybe more a little classic rock sounding so it was again the many sides of your playing Um, one question I have to ask you I I would kick myself if I didn't I I don't know if you would kind of call it the main theme on the guitar sometimes I feel like screaming are you you tapping that? no no it's it's artificial harmonics threading the notes Okay. Left hand, and then twelve frets above, and sometimes seven frets above. Okay. Uh, you know, stopping the string and, and then taking the thick. Okay. Yeah. I've tried to study how you play that because that is just a, a brilliant, brilliant piece of music, and and it sounds so much better when you play it. You know, because I'm just trying to pick the notes, and it does not sound as good as you do. Um, well, part of it, if you heard yourself doing it with a whole band, I think you'd like it a lot better. Yeah. People are always critical of themselves. They they hear usually hear better things when somebody else is playing than they when they play themselves. Yeah. That's part of human nature. Yeah, that is that that is certainly the truth. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your newest collaboration, Angel Fire? Sure. That's uh, again a labor of love. Something that that I wanted to do, and you know. It it started like something I would have never expected. My my friend uh, who is a doctor in town in in Florida, and he's a guitar player, very studious guitar player. You know, very intellectual, like knows everything about the guitar and everything, very detail oriented. But he said, you know, my my daughter's been singing. And she's been working with this coach, and. And these people in Europe, and they they want her to be a classical singer, but she really likes singing other stuff. What what should she do with her career? I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but I you know I can listen to her and tell her what I think. You know, so mm-hmm. I listened to her singing. And I was going, wow. Would you like to come over and and, and work on the song? And uh, you know, her mom and dad brought her over for you know a few days in a row. We 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 wrote and recorded a, an idea that I had sitting around and then I said well, wow this is great you know and everybody loved it that it, that was there in the, stu- the studio and everything I said can we do this again and over the course of the next two years we did just off and on whenever I was in town whenever um, it, it was fine with their schedule mm-hmm. and eventually I mean she was she started when she was 16 and then I think by the time she was maybe 19 or something we had 
finished and out. But the, the, the whole point of it was, here was this girl with the most angelic, pure voice. Mm-hmm. She could sing just anything, sing in tune. And uh, I, I wouldn't, even, wouldn't even dream of putting a, a uh, uh, you know, a pitch quantizing thing on her. You know, it's, she just has got it. You know, she's a really, really trained, incredible singer. And basically, since I was doing it, um, I could just kind of write whatever I wanted to hear her sing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, music. I, she would do the, the lyrics pretty, pretty much and everything, but, uh, you know, there were some things that I could just come up with that, I, you know, that, oh, I've always wanted to do something like this. And and just write it, and so it's, it's, it's predominantly acoustic sounding, mm-hmm. and and very mellow, but but very beautiful. Yeah, like I'm I'm a fan of, of you know listen to something just oh I don't know like like um, something is totally different as 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 Anya's Watermark album. You know? Oh sure. Yeah, it, and and contrast this with what I just got finished playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, a couple hours ago, so. It's, you know, I, I like that juxtaposition of, of different styles. So, so working with Sarah was, was just a nice diversion from, you know, all the other stuff that, that, that I was recording yeah. and, and working on live. And I, basically, I just, I just did it so I could hear her sing. Yeah. And soon, I, we had enough for a CD. I said, well, do you want to see if we can put this out as a CD or something? And she said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Okay, great. <laughs> that's simple. Can't beat that. Now, what? Um, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. But what? What does 2011 hold for Steve Morris? Are you are you going to be doing more dates with Deep Purple or back into the studio or? Uh, Deep Purple. Well, we got in a little bit more on this tour in Europe. Then we're um, let's see, a small bit of time off. Then mm-hmm. we're working on the album in March. Okay. Well, actually, we're going to Mexico again. Yeah. <laughs> Back where it all started. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hopefully, hopefully we're we'll be heading for the non-napping section. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, then then we're going to Spain to do the writing, uh, the long writing session for the album. Then going to Russia, and then South America, and then then record. I think. Oh, okay. So, that, so that, next year is already planned out. Yeah, there you go. And then you'll be home for Christmas. Yes, it'll be a whole year from now. Well, Steve, I do want to thank you. I know it's it's late there, and I don't want to keep you alone. I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a great honor to talk to you, man. Same here. I really appreciate it. No, it isn't the
Steve Morris and Sarah Spencer. That is a song called Far Gone Now. You can get that album if you go to Steve Morris's website. You can find that at stevemorris.com. Again, the band is called Angel Fire. We want to thank Steve for coming on the show and taking the time out of a very hectic touring schedule to do the show. We're going to get into an interview now with a band that's been relatively popular in the Pittsburgh area. They're doing a bit of a East Coast tour, but unfortunately not making it to Pittsburgh this time around. This band called Jackal, who kind of survived and came out of the very late 80s, early 90s, kind of hair metal, melodic hard rock scene. And have really maintained a, a kind of a down home, honest to goodness fan following. Uh, Jesse James Dupree, the vocalist, is currently involved with a uh, show called Live from the Full Throttle Saloon. Here's a song from their latest album called When Moonshine Shine and Dynamite Collide. This is a track called My Moonshine Kicks Your Cocaine's Ass from Jackal. And then we're going to get into an interview with Jesse James Dupree. <laughs>
gentleman from the band Jackal, Jesse James Dupree. How are you doing today, Jesse? Man, life could not be any better, brother. Just waking up every day and taking as big a bite out of life fast as I can. Amen to that. Hey, I um, wanted to talk a little bit about the new album, but also wanted to kind of delve back into uh, your past being kind of the preeminent songwriter of uh, Jackal. You want to talk a little bit about what you listened to growing up? I mean, I I kind of hear bands like maybe Blackfoot and things like that in your style, but what did you listen to growing up? Well, I mean, oddly enough, you, I mean, you, you're, you're going to scratch your head on this, but I mean, I listened to a lot of stuff like uh, like uh, uh, Wilson Pickett and and um, and stuff like uh, Joe Text, and just a lot of, of black soul music. Uh, you know, growing up, I mean, as far as the rock stuff, you know, I got over, and then I was really big into the Who, and I was really big into Led Zeppelin. Song remains the same soundtrack, and you know, just all that kind of stuff. And you know, I've always been always been a huge ACDC fan and always been a, a huge old Aerosmith fan. You know, the Aerosmith Rocks album, I think, is probably one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. But, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm totally, uh, I, I'm, I'm totally into the old, still am into the old, you know, the, the, all those great black fingers that, you know, had that raspy, you know, had all that great, you know, growl in their voice and stuff. And that's where I learned how to do my thing was, you know, with, with stuff like James Brown. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I was, I, you know, I went to the gym last night and came back. I was, you know, jamming out to uh, James Brown's Sex Machine. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's a great song. The the two bands you mentioned, Brian Johnson and, and uh, Steven Tyler, are certainly no stranger to that uh, raspy sound to their voice as well, which I think you've got as well. Now, yeah. Um, you guys have a new album out called When Moonshine and Dynamite Collide. Do you want to talk a little bit about the writing and the recording of that album? Well, I mean, you know, most of those songs, uh, you know, we had a chance to road test, and we didn't, you know, we, we took, you know, several years went down before we put out a new album, and we were still out playing and touring and doing our thing, but, uh, you know, we, we road tested all of these songs and uh, before we, you know, put them on a record, and I think it showed, I think it was kind of why, there's probably the one common thread as to why people, you know, uh, think it's a lot like our first record. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there. When you play them back to back, which I have done in, in preparation for this, there isn't a big departure, um, and you know the sound's very cohesive. Um, it's very true to what you expect Jackal to sound like, which is is refreshing. You know, so many bands, especially a band of your ilk that kind of came out in the early '90s and, and somehow managed to mine some platinum out of an album in the '90s, to then not go and radically change your sound was refreshing. Well, thank you. You know, we've been, we've been very fortunate, uh, been very fortunate to, uh, you know, found our niche, and uh, you know, we're not shy about it. <laughs> we we do what we do. Yeah. Now, would you say? I mean, obviously, is the going into the studio to do an album kind of a necessity to just stay on the road? I mean, is it is that kind of? I sense watching you guys live that, that the road is what it's about with Jackal. It is, and uh, you know, I think it, I think it's you know. You may not have to do an album, no. You know, the answer to that would be no, it's not essential. But I do think it's essential to put new material into the show and, you know, take the show to different places. And and uh, I think, you know, in, it's just inherently in you as a band, too, to want to, you know, play new stuff. And uh, so we've always introduced new stuff into the set, um, you know, along with their, the songs everybody expects to hear. But but at the end of the day, it's, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's about, you know, it's, it's always trying to add to it. Yeah, and then like as I mentioned earlier with the new CD, there are, there aren't songs on there where if you said I'm going to add three songs from this album to the set list, that I think people would dread. There are a lot of bands out there 
putting out new material and you have to sit through those songs in their live set. I don't think yours qualify as sit through type of song. No, I mean, I, th- I think there's a well-rounded album if, if somebody's wanting to rock. I mean, it's, it's a pretty honest, you know, uh, you know, back to the basics, you know, it's the fundamentals of rock and roll that, that motivate everybody to want to go and overturn a car. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. We'll leave saving the world to, uh, you know, to Bono and you too. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, we we have our, our own agenda, which God bless. I mean, it's a great band, and they do what they do. But uh, you know, I, I mean, it's the other end of the spectrum of what we're about. So, and uh, it, you know, they, I don't fault them for what they do, and I damn sure don't expect to be faulted for what I do. Correct. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, one of the songs that, that maybe raised a few eyebrows was "Just Like a Negro." And then, obviously, um, your more recent collaboration with DMC on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the track was about and how that collaboration kind of came to play? Um, well, the album was out. Just Like a Negro is, is on the record. I, I'd written it with three black friends of mine. It's a great record. Uh, you know, I, I don't really explain it. If you don't take time to listen to the lyrics and you want to try to find fault with it, then once again, you can kiss my ass because it's, you know, it's not a negative song. But um, DMC connected with it. He loved it, and he called and said, "Hey, I got to be part of it. You know, what 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 can I do?" And so we cut a version of it, and it's available on iTunes now. And uh, I'm very proud. I mean, you know, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's an intense individual. He's a great guy. He turned out to be a good friend. So, you know, I'm very proud to be collaborating with him. And uh, he's on the road with us for the next couple of weeks. And uh, he's been out with us since August. Yeah, that's got to be kind of a. Uh, a fun thing. I mean, like you said, he's he's been around. God, it's been almost thirty years since Run DMC kind of literally broke through the walls of uh, in, into our genre of music with Aerosmith and uh, certainly. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's like I say, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'm. I am not proud to admit, but the first time I heard "Walk This Way" was Run DMC's version. So. <laughs> I have to, well, it's all as long as you got to it. That's all that counts. Yeah, big tip of the cap to those boys. Now, um, the one of the discussion, one thing I noticed um, on your record label, um, your son's band, Nigel Dupree, has got a band. Do you want to talk a little bit about your involvement with the band or mentoring? Well, I mean, he gets it honest. He grew up around it, and uh, you know, I have You know, I don't sit around and drill a lot of stuff in his head. He just naturally picked it up, and uh, you know, he he's the one that came to me and said, "Hey, Dad, I, I've got a band. That, you know, my band's ready to record a record." And I said, "Okay." So, you know, because, I mean, you know, I'd just been letting them do their thing and, and I went in there, I listened to the songs, I said, okay, let's do it. So we put some microphones up in front of those amps and drums and we recorded the record. It's available on iTunes now. It's the Nigel Dupree band and he's just, uh, he's doing it the honest way. He's got, he's got his band and they load up in that thing and go hit the road. He'll be opening up for us on Jackal on this whole run. Excellent. So you have the Nigel Dupree band. Are there any other artists right now on Mighty Loud Records or is it just... Uh, uh, Power Man, Power Man 5000. Wow. Okay. So you're not sitting around on your laurels, and you've got some. No. No. Uh, power there. Um, yeah, they're they're, little, they're doing great. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your your TV show on True TV? Just give a little background for those who may not have seen it. Yeah, it's what it takes. The world's largest biker bar. It sits on 30 acres in Sturgis, South Dakota, and it's uh, I mean, it you know, it, it it's. <laughs> It's a, you talk about a, a show that's off the hook. Uh, it's on the True Television Network. It airs every Wednesday. We had a top five cable program uh, with this series last year, and um, and uh, I expect that it'll do even better this year. I mean, we, the, the premiere was last week, uh, you know, and, uh, and this, the day after tomorrow, this coming Wednesday, will be the second episode. All right, and that's on what used to be Court TV, I believe, is now True TV. So Yeah. 
people check that out then. And what is your involvement with that? Are you just kind of a, a producer or? I'm the executive producer and I'm in the show. I mean, I'm, I'm part of the show, but uh, but I, I created and executive produced that show. Now, is TV something that, I mean, is it similar to working in the rock and roll business? Unfortunately, be- yeah. As far as as the business side, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's no different than dealing with the record companies. But uh, but as far as uh, you know, as far as you know, doing it, it, you know, it's just as much fun as making records and that kind of thing. I really, I really, you know, have have a have a a good, a great time doing it. Yeah, which is excellent. Well, Jesse, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, and uh, everybody have to check that record out and uh, spread the word, and we're just keeping it going. Great. Thanks. All right, Jesse James Dupree from Jackal. I want to thank him also for taking the time out to come on the show. If you'd like to mind more information about us, you can go to www.ironcityrocks.com. You'll find links to our Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, YouTube, and all that great stuff. Also, we invite you to check out on our homepage the episode 2 of the Iron City Rock Show, which is a video show, kind of reminiscent to what MTV used to be when people actually cared. So, again, ironcityrocks.com. We thank you for taking the time out to join us today, and we invite you to join us back next time. Thanks. (laughs) 